everybody. Welcome to the Neighbors Church Podcast for today. Uh, I'm Dan here with my beautiful wife, Alexis. We mentioned last time, it's so comfortable for us now. We've moved out of our closet into our dear friend's garage, Shua, our producer. So we're sitting here on the couches having another conversation with you guys today about ideas that are just constantly floating around in our heads. This is just going to be a short one today. Um, We really wanted to plant a seed and the way that these seeds bear fruit in the economy of God is they start so short and so simple and so small. But like Jesus said, out of these mustard seeds become this expansive way of Mm -hmm. kingdom thinking. So uh, in our last conversation, um, we were talking about numbering our days and living in the present moment. And today we're going to kind of continue on in that same way or that same vein, but with a look to the future, except not the future of our personal lives, uh, the future of our lives impact long after we are gone. This is something that I personally have been praying for quite some time and my wife has joined me in. Um, It's around this notion of legacy, legacy living legacy thinking, legacy decision-making versus limited living. Um, And we're going to just talk here for a moment about what we actually mean by that. God always is working, obviously, and he is working from this like macro perspective. He obviously sees the beginning from the end. But we as humans on this earth... (laughs) are always, we have just a limited perspective. We have this micro perspective and we really can only tend to look at either what's most directly in front of us, or even as we talked about in the last podcast, we're like looking to the past and we do look to the future to some degree. But only our future. Yeah. it. But we're limited in it. We have this micro perspective. And so one of the things that Dan and I, as he mentioned, that we've been praying for many years now, um, and we want to filter our decision-making, and we want to live through this prayer of keeping our great-great-grandchildren in mind. So not just like praying prayers and making decisions that affect only our lives and even our kids' lives, but how are these decisions, how are these prayers that we're praying going to affect our kids, our grandkids, our great-great-grandkids, those kids that are going to come from us that we're actually never going to see. Mm-hmm. You know, we do these conversations for our, we know there's many listeners outside of Neighbors Church, uh, but these specific conversations, um, uh, we really are thinking about our our specific local family, our church family here in San Diego when we do these things. We're glad you all benefit from it. But as a church planter, uh, I've been trained over these 20 years in the church planting world, you know, to cast vision and to motivate. And these are excellent things to do. But all of that vision is usually wrapped up in what are we going to do this year? Now, I'm not diminishing the importance of that. Yeah, we, there's kind of a high speed nature to mm-hmm. church planting. That's how are you going to get the most production out of your first year and then your second year? What's your five-year plan, which it's important to have mm-hmm. certain metrics, although I kind of even hate the word metrics in relationship to church planting. But yeah. <laughs> it is important to have um, 
you know, signs of health and things that you're looking for that are giving you an awareness of, okay, this is viable, this is happening. Mm -hmm. But it is very much, um, there is an association with church planting that's high speed. High speed and limited. Mm -hmm. The vision is limited. And um, this just came out of nowhere for me one morning where I I was either teaching or doing announcements or something. And uh, as is often the case with me, I just said out of the blue, and I'm really praying that some of your great-grandchildren get married at Neighbors Church. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a profound moment. It was like an epiphany for me because we had been talking about planting this church with, uh, as Schizero has so wisely said, a slowed-down spirituality versus a hamster wheel spirituality, a, a very slowed-down way and a simple way uh, of being. And out of that has come uh, a vision of longevity that expands beyond ourselves. You know, I really uh, am enamored with the church on the corner that was built in the 1800s and multiple generations, despite whether that church has ingrown or liberalized or whatever has happened, that building represents generations of Christians and they dot the landscape of of the United States all Mm -hmm. over. And Having a vision of longevity for our church and for our family, I don't know. It's moving me from a place where I I feel the tension of what's our next five-year strategy? I feel that tension and that pressure released when I'm like, what's our five-generation strategy? Whoa. (laughs) It slows things down and it really does give all of God's people pause to say, oh, we're working our entire lifetime, not just five years, but the next 50 years to make decisions and to establish a foundation for what will come 50 generations after us. Mm-hmm. You know, really living for only now. So, and even with church planting, like only living for what's going to happen in our timeline and our generation. Our career, our, yep. our moment. The success of the church plant, like really that becomes a really disappointing way to live and it creates an unnecessary rush um, and a strife versus this slowed down long game, like we're thinking long game, like five generations, long game thinking about what comes after us. It's just, it's, it's such a foreign concept to the modern mind, our hyper individualistic build your best life now cultural mantra is it it saturates us it's the air we breathe but when you look through the the biblical narrative when you let your life be formed by the stories of sacred scripture what you see is a god who is working from generation to generation to generation to generation mm-hmm. you know it's all the chapters that we all skip it's the long list of names. Of and so-and-so begets so-and-so, and, and so-and-so and, begets so-and-so. And on, and on, and Does on. beget the King James Version? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Birthed would be weird. Birthed. We need an English translation that says birthed. We're definitely getting off track. But um, this, this generational way that God works, and God intends us to think about coming generations. God intends for us to um, to intentionally resist the radical individualism because mm-hmm. he has created humanity as a collective whole. 
we are interconnected one unto another. And what one does in this generation affects multiple generations to come, in particular, uh, family lineage. And I, I mean bloodline family lineage, but even more so church family lineage. You know, this doesn't mean when we start thinking about um, legacy that we forget the present moment. What we're saying is we need to add legacy to the way that we think about our present moment. Uh, And so it's a very subtle shift, but it's a very important shift. And I, I find it fascinating that while we are so myopic, that's just a big word that means so like singularly focused in a very small area, while we are so myopic in our vision, we are curious and fascinated by our histories. Oh man, even look at the websites that all the different groups that have popped up in the you know, recent past few years of being able to get your DNA tested and see like where all your, you know, with your blood work and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, like where you come from, like what um, different cultural influences are there, ethnicities, that kind of thing. That's become hugely popular. I mean, even our brother and sister-in-law gave that to your parents for a Christmas gift this year. And I am dying. I'm mm-hmm. dying to know, you know, the 23andMe stuff, the Ancestry.com stuff. I, I have, we all have this deep-seated curiosity and fascination about the generations that preceded us and that brought us into this world, our cultural and our ethnic roots. And you know why? It's because those previous generations, though 99% of us don't know even our great-great-grandparents' names. Yep. Those generations that preceded us shaped who we are. In the economy of God, God knew that it would be those people, their fingerprints that would be upon us in this present moment. And so the human soul longs to have this longevity. Mm -hmm. We long to last, I think is what we're getting at with this idea. You know, this whole idea of being curious and and wanting to know who we are from those that preceded us. Um, I am what you would consider culturally or ethnically ambiguous. <laughs> I am mistaken for being Middle Eastern. I am mistaken for being Iranian. Um, being in Israel with me with a long beard is quite an experience. It's just, it's, it's an amazing thing. But in truth, my, my cultural and ethnic roots are Portuguese. My family came from uh, the Azores, which is a small chain of islands out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And um, some time ago, this, this, this idea of feeling pride in where we come from and like identifying with generations that we never met w- was made so apparent to me. Uh, I was part of a small pastor's group where we prayed every week. And at a certain point in time, a... Uh, a Missionary? Yeah, an, old, an older mm-hmm. gentleman who had been a missionary in the Azores on this small chain of islands. He'd been a missionary there for like 30 years and where my family had come from. And um, one day when he first joined our group, we were all introducing ourselves and, and um, ask, telling each other our names. And Hi, I'm Dan Braga. And he got this look on his face and he paused and he looked at me and he, say, he says, did you say Braga? And then, of course, I'm from Idaho and my family pronounces the last name, the Portuguese last name, Braga. And I said, yeah, my name's Dan Braga. And he said, Braga. And he got this huge smile on his face. And all of a sudden, he just kind of erupted. He said, I can't believe this. I'm, I'm actually meeting one of the old people. And, <laughs> and this guy who had been a missionary from the Azores knew my family line. And suddenly I was drawn in. I was like, tell me more, John. Tell me about who we were as a people. What, what was happening? Because we are um, 
we are legacy souls. Mm -hmm. You are a legacy soul. You have these people that have preceded you and you have these people that will succeed you. They will go after you and you will form their identities. It's the way God has wired us. Mm -hmm. I remember too, my grandmother is actually Mexican and it was the norm going to my grandparents' place, um, you know, spending time at their house and all the time they'd be listening to Linda Ronstadt's album, Canciones de Mi Padre. <laughs> and um, that's, I think, like letters to my father, or songs for my father, something like that. So they'd be having this wonderful music playing. Grandma and grandpa would like dance to it. And then we'd also be eating like grandma's homemade enchiladas. And like for me, those memories are so powerful. And I remember a few years back after watching the Pixar film Coco, which was just like so beautiful, the music, everything, I actually had this like feeling of sadness because I, I started to realize like, oh, you know, with, you know, when the time comes for my grandma's passing, like who's going to continue on this rich legacy, this heritage that I'm part of? And like with each generation removed... I started to see like, oh, you lose some of that unless yeah. you have someone in there that's like, hey, this is this is part of our heritage. And so I kind of felt sad um, watching the Coco film because it just brought in that bigger picture of where we come from and how that influences and shapes us and how I as a little child um, – you know, was so influenced by eating enchiladas and listening to this one, this woman's wonderful voice as she's singing these Spanish songs, mm -hmm. you know, throughout the hallways of my grandparents' house mm -hmm. and feeling sad at the thought of losing that. There is a sadness in it. I think it grieves, it grieves the soul. Americans are uh, really a, a society adrift uh, and disjointed from their past the idea of legacies and heritages and these kind of cultural markers that we pass on one unto another have been lost in the in the American dream of the pursuit of now. Mm -hmm. And the the individualism that drives our culture disjoints, it like disconnects from what has gone before and, and actually in some ways disregards it and discounts it. The idea of progressivism, we need to move forward versus conservatism, conserve what has come before us and, and helped... Um, shape us. You know, the only culture that has maintained its really deep ethnic and cultural traditions are the Jews. Uh, for centuries, they have maintained both in diaspora, that is in dispersion throughout the globe, and then in return, they have maintained their identity because of these deeply entrenched rhythms and traditions and practices. Shabbat, Sabbath practice, being at the center of that, Torah, uh, a scripture that forms their community that they're committed to. And so in like fashion, we as Christians are formed by the scriptures and we are formed and create these, these heritages, these legacies, these traditions that are um, absorbed into our family lineage, so to speak, and maintain our identity. And I do think in this disjointed, adrift cultural moment, there's something very attractive about the, litur the, the liturgies of the church family that create a sense of identity, create a sense of longevity, something before us created this and handed mm -hmm. it to us. And we will hand this on to our children and their children and their great-great-grandchildren. There's a real uh, ethos of security and power and uh, presence in, in that type of thing. You know, some of us might think that it's vain to consider what's going to come after us. 
um, in Ecclesiastes, you know, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he's kind of comes across cynical at times. Um, Not even comes across. He's a bitter cynic. Yeah. He's, 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 man, he's, he's, uh, he represents so much of our cultural moment Mm -hmm. and the conversation, just cynical about life and what's the point of this. Yeah, we just kind of can develop this thought process that, you know, once we're gone, no one's really going to remember who we are. And so we kind of get into this rut of thinking, you know, there's no point to this. But this actually directly denies how God works through generations, whether our names are actually remembered or not. It's so important that when we talk about legacy, 100% it is so likely... that our names will not be remembered by our great-great-grandchildren. And I, even when you think of, you know, the ancient fathers and, you know, different people in history who have really shaped and influenced Christianity, and we still have their writings today, um, it's still few and far in between when you compare that to the fabric of all of humanity. Yes. But the fact is, in the fabric of all of humanity, most of life has been shaped by, yes, we're grateful for those writings, but most of life is shaped by the fingerprints of those who've gone before us directly in our line. Proximity of relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, I never met my great-grandmother. In fact, I'm blanking on her name right now, literally in the middle of this conversation. And some time ago, uh, this is when my wife and I still lived in Grandma Twin Prather? Falls. Grandma Prather. But I don't know what Grandma Prather's first, first name was. Name. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I'm going to have to actually call my dad and ask. Anyway... Um, my, um, well, we were living in Twin, and um, I'm, uh, I'm the only Christian in my family at that point, especially. I was the only Christian in my family. Living in Twin, meaning Twin Falls, Idaho. Right, Twin Falls, Idaho, <laughs> middle of nowhere. Like everyone knows, Twin. Yeah. <laughs> um, you guys are family. We're, you guys know where we're from. So anyway, we, uh, we were living there, and word was getting around that Dan... I had gotten religion. Uh, I had become a Christian and left that kind of wild child rock and roll lifestyle I was living. And one day we were walking down the street and this woman approached me and recognized me. And it turns out she was one of these like my dad's second cousins, twice removed situations. (laughs) And um, she had heard through the grapevine that one of the Braga boys had become a Christian and she knew it was me. And she started talking with us, my wife and I, and just, it was, it was a little bit surreal to me because out of nowhere, she says, you know, Dan, you need to know that your great grandmother Prather was praying that there would be men in this family line that would carry the name of Jesus. And with tears in her eyes, this woman who was virtually a stranger to me said, you're the answer to those prayers. Mm. The legacy of a woman's prayers, uh, generations later, you know, two or three generations later, now me sitting on this couch, I don't even know her first name. And yet my children and my grandchildren, and now I pray for my great and my great and my great, 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 great grandchildren. I pray for them because though the name may be lost in time, the effect of that name and the presence of that name uh, and the, the fingerprints of those prayers are moving through the generations. That's a profound reality to me. Mm-hmm. There can really be um, bitter fruit that's produced when we're not thinking generationally. Um, in the Old Testament, we see this so pointedly with Hezekiah. 
And he is this man who has this complicated character. He loved God and he wanted to do great things for him and he did great things for him. But at the end of his life, we see this major fault line in his faith. Hezekiah gets sick and he prays to God to be healed. Um, But then he proceeds and he does get healed. Yeah. But then he goes on to show off all of his wealth to the Babylonians. And the prophet really saw this as an omen um, of the coming Babylonian captivity. And when the prophet confronts Hezekiah, uh, yeah, Isaiah, he um, he says to him, Isaiah says to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought, will there not be peace and security in my own lifetime? And so this is like shocking because I would read this and and hear this prophet telling me like, look, your own flesh and blood are going to be taken away. They're going to be placed into captivity. They're going to become eunuchs. And Hezekiah is like, well, that's all fine because at least in my lifetime, there's going to be peace and security. That's quite a rebuke, my Mm -hmm. friend, to us as generational thinkers or non-generational thinkers. Hey, at least it's going to be all good in my lifetime. I'm not really worried about what's going to happen to my great-grandchildren. I'll be long gone. And, you know, the Hebrew scriptures are very, very sophisticated literature. They don't ever come out and just say something explicitly. But I do find it very interesting that this scene where the prophet Isaiah is confronting Hezekiah and Hezekiah's response is like, it's all good in my life, so I don't really care what happens to my family afterwards. Mm-hmm. The next the next scenes are the scenes that bring on Hezekiah's son, a man named Manasseh. Yeah. Manasseh was a gnarly, gnarly king. In fact, it was Manasseh's line, it was Manasseh's line post-Hezekiah who couldn't care less about the generations after him who became the most devilish and destructive kings in the Hebrew history. They were the ones that did lead to the Babylonian captivity. And you can't help but wonder the way that the Hebrew sages compiled these texts. I think they're giving us an object lesson. I think they're saying, this man didn't care about the generations that would come after him. This man didn't consider what his decisions, his heart was not living out of a legacy mind frame, but out of this limited mind frame. And look what it resulted in. Mm-hmm. It resulted in a line of destruction that led to captivity. And so there's a question I think that's being begged here because we frame up generational uh, we, we frame up generational thinking primarily in bloodline families. Mm-hmm. Um, I think more importantly, we need to think generationally in the church. And this the is where family. the church mm-hmm. family, yeah. How do church families like neighbors? What will our great great? What will the neighbors' great 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 grandkids? What will they think like? What will we hand them? What traditions will we hand them? How will they be? What? Where will our fingerprints be on them? What cultural things will we give to them? The church family, right? Um, <clears throat> and that includes singles. Mm-hmm. So singles, we we have our churches just chock full of beautiful single people, and. Um, This is important for you. You can't be just tuning out because you're not married and you don't think you're going to have kids. Generational thinking, excuse me, generational thinking and legacy living includes um, the singles as much as it does the married people. Mm -hmm. I think about 
the various singles that God has placed in our life, you know, in our family's life, particularly, you know, throughout the past years. When we lived in Seattle, we had three different singles live with us. We had um, two of them had been were siblings, and but they both lived with us at different times. And um, when I think back to Ian and Kelsey and Liz, mm-hmm. the way they shaped the culture in our home mm-hmm. and the way they expanded even our kids' view of the church mm-hmm. and that sense of belonging and community with people who weren't actually their flesh and blood was huge. And to this day... You know, we might be sitting around the, the the dinner table, and Ian's name will you know get brought up, and we'll be talking about fun stories of Ian when he lived with us, or Kelsey. You know, just this sense of these people who shaped, who shaped us, and had their fingerprints on our soul. Yeah, and that's within the framework of a biological family. So biological families recognize that a legacy is left when we bring singles into our family to actually be part of our family. Mm -hmm. And it is a really profound shaping thing for our children, and they will carry that on to their children's children and so on and so forth. But even within the context of the local church, the singles within a local church, they are putting their fingerprints all over that particular community. I have a dear, dear friend... Um, and he has vowed to celibacy. He's a gay man who is living a celibate life and at this point uh, has been called to be a eunuch, essentially. And yet this man's fingerprints are all over my soul and our church community. The way he thinks about Jesus, the way uh, that he relationally pursues intimacy with Jesus alone is creating a way of thinking for me and a way of thinking in our church that is passed on to the children of the church. And so singles, you cannot diminish this legacy living. Um, I mean, just a simple example. Think all of us remember our babysitters, right? (laughs) And if our babysitters exert that much influence on our memories, how much more a single person who's saying, I want my life to expand through the generations in this church family. Mm -hmm. I want my ministry and life to expand to the people who are far, far after me, after I've gone to be with Jesus. Jesus will answer those prayers. And I think he answers those prayers in ways that we cannot expect. I think the mustard seeds of generational legacy prayer bear fruit generations from now, if if we'll pray them in faith. Mm -hmm. You know, we really can't diminish in this conversation, like we can't diminish um, the influence that our everyday choices have. It's really easy to get lost in, you know, the to-dos of our life and what's happening and kind of, you know, the rat race pace that we all um, tend to engage in. We forget that there's these liturgies in our homes and in our churches that are holy and they set trajectories for future generations. Yeah, I have kind of an image that illustrates this idea. Um, I love, you guys all know, we love getting out in the mountains and backpacking. And one of my favorite things is early mornings at sunrise in these in these high alpine areas with these lakes. And these lakes are so still in the early mornings. There's no wind. And they perfectly reflect all of the scenery around them. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I love to do is pick up like a mid-sized rock early, early in the morning and huck it as hard as I can out into the middle of the lake because it creates this one singular moment of ripple. There's the center of the lake and then the rock hits and those ripples, they expand all the way out to the edges of the lake. And 
something so small, a rock, influences every atom at some point. I don't know if the physics of this is true. Somebody's probably going to call me out on this, but in my mind, it works (laughs) this way. Every atom is influenced by that singular rock being tossed in as the ripple effect goes all Mm -hmm. the way through that lake. And so I think my wife is really onto it. And think about how this infuses your daily moments. When you're living legacy, when you're legacy living and you're not living just limited to what's next and what can I build now? It infuses little moments of obedience with this moment may influence three generations from now. Mm -hmm. This prayer that we pray may not bear fruit until my great, 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 great grandchildren are on this planet should the Lord uh, choose to wait uh, with his return. You know, it really makes me think even of the whole concept of generational sin. You know, we... Which is terrifying. It is terrifying. And, you know, all of us can look back in the history of our families and hearing stories, you kind of start to put two and two together and you're like, oh, looks like we have a lot of, you know, addiction to alcohol in our family or, you know, certain things that we see repeatedly happening in our families. And again, it comes back to not diminishing the everyday choices that we have and these moments of obedience. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, our everyday moments can break those plaguing sins that have been upon our families. And rather than just succumbing to it and saying, well, you know, my dad was an alcoholic, my, you know, my, his mom was an alcoholic and her dad was an alcoholic going, nope, you know what? I today actually get to choose obedience. Mm. I am so loved and I have been forgiven of so much. And in response to that, I actually want to walk in obedience and I want to break this plaguing sin that has been upon our family. Like we have that power Mm -hmm. and that is where our fingerprints, even if our name is forgotten and our great, great grandkids don't remember our name, there is still a fingerprint on them where this plaguing sin was changed because they had a father or a great, great grandparent um, who changed that, who chose obedience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the fork in the road requires that you explore that past generational pattern of sin. Um, Genograms, as they're called, are such a helpful way of bringing transformation to past generational patterns of sin. You, You notice codependent patterns, you notice all of these things that you weren't aware were shaping your current identity. It takes a lot of bravery, a lot of courage to do the hard work of digging into the past. Um, But that is where uh, a corner is turned in family lines, biological uh, corners are turned in church lines, Mm -hmm. church family lines where faulty thinking, faulty traditions, faulty theology is repented of and turned from. And that, that church community creates a whole new tributary, a whole new line of health and gospel and revival and and all those things. You know, just real quick on that genogram, if that's something that you're interested in, again, Pete Scazzaro, um, in Emotionally Healthy Relationships, he has a whole process in which you can do a genogram and like look at the history of your family and that kind of thing. It was a super super helpful resource um, for us and our community group when we utilized it. Yeah, here's how we want to close. You know, last week we talked about living in the present moment, not regretting the past, not worrying about the future. Today we're saying, look deep into your past for the sake of present healing. Look long into your future and realize uh, that you are going to have effect there. 
And um, this, this prayer that I want to pray over you and your family and your church family and our church family is something that I have prayed for 20 years now. And I used to diminish this prayer. I used to think, oh, Dan, that's one of your kind of ridiculous outlandish prayers that you pray. Um, but the closer I get to the end of my life, I'm seeing uh, at 44. <laughs> Telling you guys, he's halfway to something. <laughs> halfway to 88. <laughs> oh, here I come, grave. Um, as I continue to age, and as I continue to pray this prayer day by day, year by year, um, I'm actually beginning to believe that my father wants to answer it. Mm-hmm. I think he's going to answer it not with my name or my wife's name or neighbor's church name known throughout the generations, but uh, I think that there's a legacy to be left. In some ways, this is rooted in the monasteries. I was at a Franciscan monastery um, some months ago where I had this revelation that here I am, generations after St. Francis lived, and uh, I'm walking around on this monastery grounds, living in the fruit of a man who lived generations ago. And it ties into this prayer that I've prayed forever. And so we're going to pray it over you and, and wrap up this conversation and hope that this seed begins to bear generational legacy fruit and legacy living in your life. Father, for uh, our friend and our, our um, fellow sojourner who's listening right now to this conversation, I pray as I have for 20 years. I pray for myself and my wife, uh, for Sophia, Nyla, and Joby, Taproot Church, Neighbors Church, Park Hill Church, Lighthouse, the church families that we've been so deeply integrated and tied to over these years. I pray for this person who's listening right now, for their singleness, for their wife or husband, for their children. I pray for their church, whoever they may be. I pray in Jesus' name that you would allow us the ripple effect of small obedience to touch every soul on this Mm -hmm. planet in this generation and a thousand generations to come with the goodness of the kingdom. I trust you, Father, that this person's life is going to have a ripple effect for a thousand generations for the glory of your kingdom. Father, only you can answer that prayer. St. Paul promised us that if we will ask, you will do beyond what we could ever think or imagine. I can't think or imagine beyond a thousand generations, but may it be so for the glory of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you guys. Shalom. Shalom.